You're listening to The Second Greatest Show on Earth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Justine Paradise. Before we start the show today, we have a quick update. At New Hampshire Public Radio, we are all working remotely right now and shifting our coverage because of the coronavirus pandemic. And we've decided to take a little step back from Second Greatest for now. We'll be republishing some of our favorite work from the past few years, stories that we've reported in response to listener questions. And we still want to hear your questions about New Hampshire. It can be on any topic, related to the coronavirus pandemic or not. Your experiences living in New Hampshire in this time, or about history. You can email us with your thoughts at secondgreatestshow at nhpr.org. We will be back with new episodes, but in the meantime, we hope you do enjoy the archival stories that we have lined up in the feed. We are really excited to share them with you again. Okay, here's the show. Welcome to the Second Greatest Show on Earth from New Hampshire Public Radio. Second Greatest is the show where you leave your questions in the hollow of the old tree in the park, and we look into the depths of the nearest vernal pool seeking the answer. Today on the show, a piece originally produced in 2018, but one that is still pretty relevant. There's this phrase tossed around in state policy conversations, the New Hampshire advantage. The idea that New Hampshire offers a strong business climate, partly due to its low taxes. This is an LP playing Governor Mel Thompson's 1978 campaign song. Almost every serious candidate for governor in the past 40 years has had to make a promise, a pledge, that in office they won't even consider a broad-based sales or income tax. First, we have no state income or general sales tax. In that regard, we are not only number one in New England, we are number one in the United States. New Hampshire and Alaska are the only two states in the country without either a broad-based sales or income tax. But Alaska relies on revenue from oil and gas extraction. So in a way, New Hampshire is unique in the country in this regard. Some say this works for New Hampshire. Limited government is good. Low taxes are good for business, good for the economy. But others point to how New Hampshire's tax structure can put a lot of pressure on local property taxes. And some question how it affects budgets for state social services. This is a confusing debate with a lot of baggage, and it's especially confusing to those new to the state, like listener Mary Douglas when she got in touch. Thank you so much for submitting your question. Um, It's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) I think my question was, why does New Hampshire seem so against having a state income tax? I thought, I, you know, I just... I've been aware of it since we moved up here. Um, I became a teacher. Once we got up here, I went back to school. I taught at Beach Street School for seven years in Manchester. And I, it seems like the schools always need more money and stuff. And it just, I didn't quite understand why there's no income tax here. Have you seen a, a kind of like rhetoric or a kind of tone that surprised you? I can't pin it down to anything, but, you know, I just wondered why that is. It seems like it's not even, it can't even be considered, and I wondered why. It may be something about the live, breathe, or die kind of thing. I don't know. I'm thinking it just might. This country on. Live free or die. 
the last person to run for governor not to take the pledge was Jackie Silly. This no-tax pledge is turning our politicians into pledge zombies, all doing the same thing, not listening to anyone. And don't even try having a conversation with them. What made you decide not to take the pledge? Because I'm absolutely opposed to it. It's a gimmick. Jackie Silly ran in 2012 as a Democrat, and she lost in the primary. I refused to take the pledge, and I said it's time that we had a conversation about what we believe government should provide in the state of New Hampshire, and then who pays for it? How do we raise revenues to um, accomplish that? And I got painted immediately as, ah, she's in there fighting for an income tax. So it's difficult even to have a conversation about it. What do people uh, say to you? Brave was probably the the, <laughs> the biggest thing. Um, I, I suspect folks on the other side of that debate said foolhardy. Um, there are people who simply, they may have admired my position on a number of things, but there were people that uh, there is no doubt and I've I've learned that since that that campaign that just felt it was an absolute no starter that you could not win in a general election by not taking the pledge in New Hampshire and I find that really sad. For decades, almost every other serious candidate for governor has taken the pledge, Democrat or Republican. But it wasn't always this way. My name is Arnie Arneson. Um, I describe myself as a politician in recovery. Arnie Arneson is a radio host and former state representative from Orford, New Hampshire. She lives in Concord now, and she's a big proponent of overhauling the tax system in favor of a state income tax. I've been here forever at the union leader. I started here more than 50 years ago. That's Joe McQuaid again, publisher of the union leader. To put it mildly, he does not share Arnie's views. I think speaking of DNA, we should make everybody in the state of New Hampshire take a spit test. And anybody who's in favor of a broad-based tax, they're going to have to go someplace else. And finally, this is Brad Cook. And I've been involved with New Hampshire Public Affairs way back since 1966. Brad Cook is a lawyer, and since the early 90s, he's been a weekly columnist for the New Hampshire Business Review. It's called Cook on Concord. Because it's supposed to loosely comment on what's going on in government and public affairs in New Hampshire. Brad and Joe are actually neighbors, and they've both got offices in Manchester. Brad's in the corner office on the 17th floor of a downtown law firm. Joe's on the newsroom floor of the union leader on the outskirts of town. But both of their offices, and Arnie's house in Concord, too, are decorated with New Hampshire memorabilia, black and white pictures of governors and political candidates and newspaper editors. All three of them, Arnie, Joe, and Brad, told me that you just can't tell the story of New Hampshire and taxes without talking about this one guy, William Loeb. Well, before Fox, before social media, before cable TV, we had William Loeb. And William Loeb was the publisher of the most powerful statewide newspaper called The Union Leader. William Loeb was, from 1946 until 1981, a pretty influential figure in the state of New Hampshire. No media source in New Hampshire uh, has the dominance that the union leader had when he was the owner. It's hard to overstate. New Hampshire today would just not be the same without the influence of William Loeb. He was very conservative and one of the most powerful figures in the state for 35 years. And he got his fair share of national attention, too. By 1948, Loeb had bought and combined New Hampshire's two major newspapers, so the union leader was born. Loeb had a media monopoly in the state. But he didn't live in New Hampshire. He was not a New Hampshireite. He and his wife had a place in Massachusetts. 
but they were legal residents of Reno, Nevada. But we were his political petri dish. He ran the paper uh, in a very controversial and uh, colorful way. And he always wore a bow tie or a bolo tie. After he realized that the national press was writing about him because he was such a flamethrower, that's when he decided to have an editorial every day of the week except for Sundays. Three times I had editorials. One favorable, two unfavorable. He was unapologetic. Here's Loeb discussing his editorial and why he thought black people are inferior to white people. This is from a PBS documentary on his life. Let me put it this way. Uh, how come in all these years in, in a perfectly decent climate in Africa, uh, they hardly even developed the wheel? What's an example of his influence? Well, the one that you're here for. The, the lack of a broad-based tax in the state of New Hampshire. I think William Loeb had a great deal to do with that. Oh, he was absolutely against broad-based taxes. He thought that the more money you give to the government, the more the government will expand and spend. Our cartoonist back in the day, we had a character known as Old Broadbase, which was a big money bag with big eyes and mother tattooed on one arm and uh, bleed him dry tattooed on the other. What would he do if he had like a pet issue or something that he wanted to happen? He'd pound it every day, every day. He could take something and make it an issue. You wouldn't have heard of the pledge if he didn't keep pounding it all the time. But William Loeb didn't invent New Hampshire's anti-tax attitude. The belief in limited government has deep roots. Brad Cook says it dates back all the way to New Hampshire's colonial constitution, written in 1776, right after the beginning of the American Revolution. Our government is weak by design, diffuse by design. The people who wrote our constitution made sure we had a big house, a small senate, a two-year term for governors, uh, so that there wouldn't be a strong central government. On top of that, income taxes in the United States are only about a century old. It was only after the 16th Amendment passed in 1913 that the federal government was even allowed to collect taxes off income. But when it was first proposed two years earlier, in 1911, New Hampshire rejected it. And when the amendment did pass, New Hampshire was the last state to ratify it. After the federal government, states started implementing income taxes too, but New Hampshire wasn't among them. As the New York Times reported in 1929, New Hampshire manifests small enthusiasm for an income tax. But that wasn't true across the board. In 1949, Governor Sherman Adams proposed an income tax, and in the late 60s, moderate Republican Walter Peterson decided to take on the tax code, which hadn't changed very much since the 19th century agrarian economy. There were a lot of old, creaky taxes on the books, like the stock and trade tax that would levy a tax on inventory. Peterson hoped to clean house, but in 1971, he also proposed a 3% income tax, which drew the ire of William Loeb. In a way, the problem for Walter Peterson was Bill Loeb. During election times, he would whack the candidates he didn't like and promote the candidates he did like in no uncertain terms, uh, no varnish. Um, he is famous or infamous for calling uh, various presidents of the United States, uh, the number one liar in the United States, that would be John F. Kennedy. Uh, Dopey Dwight. 
That would be former General Eisenhower. He allegedly made Ed Muskie cry. Was some people credited with Muskie losing to McGovern? John Kennedy, the night before the uh, general election in 1960, um, had a big rally across the street from the union leader. And Kennedy got up and said, there may be a worse newspaper and a worse publisher in these United States than the union leader in William Loeb. But if there are, I can't think of them right now. And William Loeb said, he gets upset with a little old newspaper publisher in New Hampshire says, I wouldn't want him in a White House. William Loeb had been propping up candidates and tearing down others for years, but none with more success than Meldrum Thompson Jr. Mel said he was out haying his field one day and got off the tractor and filed for governor. What was his slogan again? Axe the tax. Axe the tax. And somebody gave him an axe handle and he carried it around in his car. I don't think he ever com committed mayhem. So Mel Thompson and, and Loeb were sort of kismet. So Governor Peterson had been reforming the tax system and entertaining the idea of an income tax. And Thompson was saying, You elect me, that's not going to happen. We did, and it didn't. It took three tries, but in 1972, Mel Thompson beat Walter Peterson for the Republican primary. Then he was elected governor. Mel Thompson was a very conservative, fiery character. He was notorious for inflammatory positions like suggesting that the National Guard carry nuclear weapons or lobbying for an oil refinery on the seacoast. Loeb remained a close friend and probably an advisor. They called each other all the time. They were friends and they went mountain climbing together along with their wives, uh, Gail Thompson and, and Naki Loeb. Even New Hampshire's state motto wasn't widespread until Mel Thompson's tenure. The Live Free or Die song you've been hearing comes from Keep New Hampshire Number 1, a 45 filled with songs pressed for Mel Thompson's campaign for a third term in 1976. A lot of what is considered intrinsic to New Hampshire today comes from the era of Mel Thompson and William Loeb, and that includes the anti-tax pledge. Well, yeah, did he invent the pledge, Loeb? Oh, God, yes. Well, he and I'm sure, I don't know if Loeb did or Mel did. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a cocktail. And, and what is so amazing is that, is that the, the, the ghost of Mel and Bill is still so present today. Uh, what changed was momentum to change the tax system was halted. Any candidate for governor would be asked, and if nobody else asked, we would make sure that our reporter asked, are you taking the pledge? I mean, he'd want to know if somebody running for alderman in Ward 1 in Manchester was taking the pledge. Well, last I checked, they couldn't pass a bread-based tax, but he'd ask about it. Executive counselors who can't vote on a bread-based tax, he'd want to know if they were taking the pledge. I mean, it became something that candidates would say, just let's get it out of the way. Hugh Gallon beat Mel Thompson, and Hugh Gallon uh, took the pledge. Uh, so did uh, John Sununu. So did uh, Judd Gregg. So did... John Lynch, so did Craig Benson, so did Gene Shaheen the first couple of times. So it stopped being just a, a litmus test in the Republican Party. It became a litmus test in both parties. It's just so well ingrained in the state that retired teachers from Maryland know about it. That's great. That's the best news I've heard all day. But it's not like New Hampshire could never change. The last state to implement an income tax was Connecticut in 1991. It was the 41st state to do so, but it was a controversial move. At the time, some politicians promised property tax relief would also come along, but that didn't pan out. 
Now, Connecticut has both an income tax and high local property taxes, and it consistently ranks among the highest tax states in the country. For some in New Hampshire, Connecticut is a cautionary tale. And some say New Hampshire's tax system is working, like Jared Walzak at the Tax Foundation in Washington, D.C., which rates New Hampshire as number seven on its state business tax climate index. When I called him, Jared Walzak said that there is something to the idea of the New Hampshire advantage. New Hampshire has the reputation generally as a low-tax state, and that, therefore it makes the state fairly attractive for investment and for um, people to locate their activities in. And the state has done well for itself over the years. If you look regionally, especially when you look at the demographics of the state, you, know, you see a state that has been probably punching above its weight for a long time. But back to our listener, Mary Douglas, and her question. The fact that it feels impossible to even discuss tax reform doesn't sit well with a lot of people, including Arnie Arneson. She's not sure about the idea that the state is working just fine without any broad-based taxes. Working for whom? So the fact that we have some success, and we do, don't get me wrong, we also have the highest, we're one of the oldest states in the nation. So as we age and as we claim we're working, let's start looking at the people that aren't successful. Let's start looking at the communities that aren't thriving. We're not a state without taxes. We're a state with some of the highest fees, the highest student tuition costs. Ernie actually ran for governor in 1992, promising to enact a state income tax. She was the first woman to win a primary for a major party in New Hampshire, and the first person to win a primary without taking the pledge since Mel Thompson. But she did lose in the general election. Later, Mark Fernold tried again in the early 2000s, and finally in 2012. There was Jackie Silly with her zombie ad. Would you take the? Would you do the same thing again? Would you refuse to take the pledge if you ran again? Absolutely. No, this I'm totally committed to. As I said, I think it's a gimmick. I think it's it's an abdication of responsibility, and I think that um, the citizens of New Hampshire deserve to know. I mean, when somebody tells them, you know, that they will not uh, support any type of broad-based tax, we ought to be clear with citizens and say, what we're really telling you is that the state's going to continue to run on your property taxes, and those are going to continue to go up. Jackie Silly said that she thinks it would take a serious initiative to pass a state income tax, and that it would have to come from citizens. But in the same year that Jackie Silly lost her bid for governor, there was a referendum on the ballot, proposing a constitutional amendment to never implement a state income tax. The referendum won 57% of the vote, but it didn't pass. They needed two-thirds. That is it for Second Greatest today. Like we said up at the top of the show, this is a rebroadcast. This story was originally reported in 2018. We are taking a little break from producing new episodes at Second Greatest, but we have some great pieces coming up in the feed from the archives, and we are really excited to share them with you. And we will be back with new episodes, so if you have a question about New Hampshire, coronavirus-related or not, please send them our way by email, secondgreatestshow at nhpr.org, or you can fill out the form on our website. Just go to secondgreatestshow.org. This episode of The Second Greatest Show on Earth was produced by me, Justine Paradise, with Ben Henry, Taylor Quimby, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Hannah McCarthy. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray says there's money in the paella stand. Music came from Mel Thompson's campaign, Blue Dot Sessions, Poddington Bear, and Revolution Void. The Second Greatest Show on Earth is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.